Welcome to No BS Engineering, the podcast for developers around the world who care about their careers. Join us as we share ideas, war stories, and talk with special guests about how developers can up their game and move their career forward. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of No BS Engineering. This is a career show for IT professionals and beginners, and we're here to teach you the best practices and share all the lessons that we've learned throughout the years in the IT industry. Hope that you're going to learn a lot from our experience, from me, Mario Peshev, and my friend, Kao. Kao, say hi to the audience. Hi, everybody. And today we are going to talk about essential skills supplementing programming jobs that businesses need. Now, it's really hard to figure out what exactly a business needs, even if you have several years of experience in the field, because different companies revolve around different types of return on investment. And as a software engineer, you may get mixed signals during interviews. Some companies may be focusing on some skills and others. Recruiters are always approaching you with, hey, we saw that you know this specific framework or this specific <laughs> or whatever it is. And they may be sending some mixed feelings on what you really have to focus on looking for a job as a software engineer. However, we have identified several specific areas that we know that every single company, or at least 96% of the companies look for. I just made those stats up. Right now, <laughs> get the point. So those specific skills are going to be valuable in every single job that you're starting. And the first skill is version control. Now, uh, 20 years ago, and maybe more than 20 years ago, actually, it was extremely common to just work with several people in the room and just say, hey, Joe, don't touch this file. Now I'm working on this. I'm going to let you know in 45 <laughs> minutes or so when I fix this problem, and then I'm going to push that on production and make sure you download it there, right? Even the concepts of staging environments and so forth weren't as common. Servers were more expensive. Cloud storage wasn't really a thing. So this was actually quite common. And when you have backups, it was common to also have website dot backup dash brackets one dot something else, something else, something else. It was extremely hilarious, but it was actually a thing. But luckily for about uh, two decades or so now, we do have uh, CVS, we do have SVN, now we have Git and Mercurial and a bunch of other things, especially Git with GitHub and Bitbucket and GitLab. And this is definitely something that almost every company needs. And to be completely honest, in our organization, we also have people who are not developers and are using version control one way or another. Our QA team is using version control quite a lot because they actually do deployments on staging. It's not really rocket science. It's usually a single Git pull from a specific branch. And if you know, testers can do that, you really have no excuse to stay behind on version control. And especially with version control systems like Git, they're so advanced nowadays, they can let you do so much more and maintain multiple branches and features and really work on a bunch of different uh, massive changes within a product in parallel without really losing track and, and making the whole process that much monstrous. And Kyle, what's your advice in terms of getting up to speed with version control for people who aren't that well-versed yet? I was having flashbacks there when you were talking about different versions because I've saved files as .01, .02, and I remember my very first version control was Microsoft um, uh, I, I Team something or other, I forget what it was, yeah. but it had the concept of locking files. 
So if I was editing this file, I could lock it and nobody else could touch it. And boy, that pisses people off if you go home for the weekend and have a locked file. Oh, yeah. Uh, we are so much luckier these days to have tools like Git. Um, you know, I used to be a big Subversion fan and I thought Git was just a fad and it took me the longest time to swap over. But now yeah, I, I can't imagine using anything else. Version control is one of those, um, those indis indispensable um, things. If you're doing software development or if you're doing anything in the software development um, realm, uh, my wife, the lovely and talented Kathy, she and I work on websites together and we have a Git. And so I have her set up with um, a, a visual um, Git controller program mm -hmm. so that she can check things in because she doesn't like the command line. I don't want to force her to change her workflow, but I need this stuff checked into um, to get so that we can keep it under control. So mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's not just programmers that have to to deal with this, but it is an indispensable um, thing. And one of the things I love is when we used to live back in Nashville, Git was or GitHub was actually going around city by city teaching classes on Git so that you could understand yeah. how to use Git, how to build a workflow, and how to integrate GitHub into your workflows. So it was, it, it was really awesome. She and I both took the class because this was right around the time that I was starting to use it. But mm -hmm. you know, if, you, if you're not willing to master version control, you're not going to have much of a career as software developers because the days of numbering files as 001, 002 as your version control, those days are gone. So. Yeah, and even more importantly, to some extent, I would say that once you master version control and once you get used to it, you wouldn't be starting anything in the world without version control. Oh, yeah. And quite often, I have a very complex project I'm working on, and I really need to extrapolate only the most essential bits and pieces in order to figure out where the culprit is of a specific problem. So I'm saying, okay, I'm going to isolate that in something that's so easy and just has the bare bones and everything else, stubs and skeletons lying around so that I can actually run a very simplified version of this. So I'm always starting with a new folder, a new Git repo, pushing whatever I can, committing the master version, and then iterating over and over and over again. So this way you're no longer afraid of making changes that are irreversible. You're no longer afraid of actually keeping everything in your head. How did I start? What were those first files that I actually had to get progress on? You're not afraid of starting something in the evening because you can proceed further tomorrow and you have the git logs and so on. And uh, I know that uh, some folks like you, Kyle, for example, do book, uh, kind of book writing on yep. git as well and just writing markdown and committing that and this actually turns into a copy of your book. And for example, in GitHub, your wiki is actually markdown driven. So this is also something that could be maintained and, yeah, definitely believe that this is the way to go nowadays. Yeah, and uh, these days my um, my development environment configs are all under source control. So if I if I make a change to my Bash RC and it doesn't work out, I can just restore. I've pushed all of that up to uh, to GitHub. My servers, my server yeah. um, configs are all pushed up there so that I can um, if I screw something up. I can pull it back down. Um, if I screw it up horribly, I can rebuild the server and restore it back to a reasonable state pretty quick. But thankfully, I've not done that in several years. <laughs> but hey, um, you know, you were talking about um, how you isolate problems when you're um, trying to find something that's not working. And that brings up the next topic, which is debugging, because debugging is a skill and it is not just programming. Debugging is a skill unto itself. Talk to us a little bit about how you debug. 
Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, I got into debugging a few years ago. Um, I already spent you know over a decade in programming, but I was getting more or less tired from solving, well, from doing the groundwork for solving technical problems. I was only interested in problem solving itself, which is why once a company grew and we had more and more developers, I, were, I was more inclined than actually helping them teach and get excited about things that I had done a thousand times. But I was in charge of looking at different code bases assembled by people with different backgrounds and finding specific problems that I wouldn't have encountered myself. Mm-hmm. Because with my background, so to speak, in software engineering, I wouldn't do mistakes that were more or less straightforward, such as, let's say, um, SQL injections or um, endless for loops doing select statements in the database and things like that. So those are things that I wouldn't do myself, but are things that happen in a regular software uh, development project. So I always enjoy spending, you know, two or three hours on a complex project and just finding something that said, yep, that's the culprit, fix it, isolate it, run it, and it brings so much joy for me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, in terms of debugging, I have different types. Obviously, I always use um, the the entire debugging stack that I can find in a specific different language. Now, I've uh, written in different programming languages, including uh, Java and Python and PHP over the uh, past decade and so. Uh, In PHP, I use Exabug quite a lot. I also use traditional var dumps and exits and so forth. Sometimes it's harder to use Perilog and actually write stupid files, but sometimes it works. Sometimes I do options, kind of update settings in the database just so that I know what's getting updated and whatnot. I use all types of loggers I can get access to. I use all sorts of profiling I can get access to, such as cache grind for specific things. Sometimes it's apparent from a profiler that a script is running over and over and over again and trying some stuff. Uh, I'm putting wrappers among, let's say, global variables or some other detached objects. So I'm really trying to push the limits of the programming language and the underlying architecture as best as possible in order to debug as easily as possible. And usually when I'm learning a new programming language, because uh, it's pretty much a crash and burn experience, I just start out and I need to build this simple, uh, stupid app. I'm not going to read the entire book on it. I know software engineering, but I don't know the language. So what are the easiest ways to debug content and to add loggers and to actually figure out what I'm doing? This is pretty much the first thing I do in the programming language. And what about you, Gal? Um, I'm a var, dump, and die guy, um, except when I'm working in WordPress. WordPress is probably the most difficult environment I have to debug in. Um, I end up doing a lot of uh, file put contents mm-hmm. to, um, to write out log files for that stuff, um, especially now. I, right now, I'm working on uh, my second WordPress book, extending the WordPress REST API, and I have no front end. So yeah. you know, I can't just, you know, I, I can't var up and die because it, it's all, that's all on the server. It's not going to yeah. help me. So mm-hmm. I end up writing a lot of stuff to either the error log or writing it out to uh, writing my own log files in the temp directory or something like that, um, mm-hmm. just to figure out what's going on. I value PHP debug it, it is the, or Xdebug. It is a great tool. I appreciate Derek's work on it and the fact that he keeps that up and um, love him for doing that. It's just not part of my normal workflow. There are times when I've run across where I was like, this is the only way to do it. And so I invest half a day in getting it set up the way in my environment, maybe not half a day, an hour or two, getting it set up. And then I continue on with the project. But uh, for the most part, uh, that's just not the way my brain works. Uh, I don't, 
I started, or my programming career span, like yours, spans a lot of different um, uh, languages. And like, I worked in Delphi. And in yeah. Delphi, we had the built-in integrated debugger. You know, we'd, it, it would compile, but once it compiled, you could run it with a step debugger and we could, you know, watch things happen. And uh, so I'm very familiar with the concept. I just, for some reason, it just has not taken with me on, um, on PHP. On I, I promise everybody that when I retire, I'm going to open a bar for developers called Vardump and Die. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, I do agree with you. Um, again, I do use some of the heavy cues, but usually they come handy when a product company is really struggling and they've already spent two weeks with multiple people debugging something yeah. and they need someone to actually figure this out. So then I have the kind of the authority to spend, let's say, a day or even a day and a half finding a very complex problem that is going to save um, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars within the coming year. So in that sense, it makes sense just uh, pulling the big guns and, and tackling a very complicated problem. And sometimes it is more complicated with third-party APIs, with third-party services. Sometimes you have uh, timeouts and you can't really figure out when a timeout is coming. Sometimes you have Ajax callbacks, which are running in an asynchronous manner and specific things are firing in the wrong order. Those are the things that are really hard to catch with standard Vardump and I. But aside from that, on a day-to-day, -day, especially if I'm more or less familiar with the code base, at least I know the foundations of the code base, I'm definitely heading to, okay, which file is executing this? Let's just add 10 Vardumps and figure out what's breaking. And this yep. is extremely fast in that sense. Absolutely. We used to, back in the day, we called it break fix. And I've been called in on several projects that they have senior developers, but they didn't want to take, take the senior developer off the primary path and, yeah. um, and make them dig down into this debug. So they'd call me in, I'd spend a day. I don't need to learn the whole product. I just need to find out this needs to do this and it's doing that. And so I, yeah. you know, if I know that, I can usually identify where the problem is happening and find a solution for it. And I used to do break fix back in the day all the time for companies. Knowing is cool. Sharing knowledge is even cooler. In my book, Uncle Cal's Career Advice for Developers, I share with you five of the most important pieces of career advice I've learned. Get your copy today by pointing a browser at bit.ly slash Uncle Cal. I want to share this knowledge with you. Well, next point is sprints, and sprints are definitely something that's extremely common lately. Um, what would be your advice for developers that aren't fully familiar with sprints? Get familiar fast. Um, I've just gone through the job hunt process, and everybody wants to know how agile are you? You know, do you do you scrum? All of these things. If you're not familiar with these concepts and your current employer or your current team is not employing these find an open source project that is doing this and get involved in that just so you can get the experience. Because once you understand what it is, it's really not that daunting of a concept, but you need some experience and you need some repetition and you need some reps to get, to, to get it into your system. Once you understand it, you can say, hey, yeah, I understand how to work in sprints and I can work with my team and we can do this. And you can start estimating software like a pro and missing your deadlines by two and three weeks, just like the rest of us. So. Indeed. And 
Moreover, sprints are important for another reason. Well, experience sprints is important for another reason. If you switch companies, knowing the concept of sprints, uh, sorry, of sprints is extremely important. However, the actual implementation may vary. Again, you do have uh, Scrum, you do have Kanban, you do have X, uh, XP, and a bunch of other method uh, methodologies, and even different companies implement them in different manners. Moreover, you do have different tools uh, that help you run sprints and measure velocity and a bunch of other terms that actually happen in, in programming. So if you know the concepts and if, if you have spent at least a year, maybe two, working on sprints, it is straightforward and it's easy to actually get up to speed. However, if it's new to you, you also need to be aware that you have new tooling and new paradigms of working and new timeframe constraints and probably additional processes such as daily stand-ups or code reviews and a bunch of other things that actually have to work. So it's more about the habit of working. It's more about prioritization. It's more about being able to assess whether certain tasks on your backlog can fit within a current sprint or not in order to not drag the entire application for quite some time. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's more or less why sprints are important. As Cal mentioned, find an open source project. You can also uh, read about them. You can find uh, there are some Scrum programs when you can become a Scrum master or things like that. I definitely do not recommend them. Uh, I personally haven't found lots of uh, uh, Scrum masters that are extremely efficient within a team. Sometimes and some messed up teams are definitely in a need of one who's just mediating the meeting and so on. But for the most part, the problem is that every company should apply their own uh, flavor of uh, agile. That's pretty much it. That's the main reason. And that's why the company has to invent that by themselves. Yeah, and, we, used to, we used to call that scrum butt. Yeah, I do scrum, scrum. but... We, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never seen scrum in its own vanilla flavor. Never have I ever. Everybody's got their own little life, their own little version of it. Yeah, exactly. I said, well, we do dailies, but not dailies every other day, or we don't do five minutes per person, but a minute per person or the other way around. And we don't do them in the morning, but in the evening and then this and then that. And so it, it's definitely their own flavor, which is completely fine. It's more a, of a guidelines than an actual specification that you need to follow to the team. Yep. Uh, next point. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to introduce the next point. Um, this one's one of my favorites, uh, mainly because I enjoy doing both of these. Uh, communication is important as a software developer. And I don't mean just being able to tell people this is my idea, but you, you have to be able to write and communicate your ideas in writing. And you also have to be able to present. And I don't mm -hmm. mean the obvious, you need to be presenting at your user groups. You do need to be presenting at your user groups. But I mean, um, there'll be times when you're called on to present for another department or for the board of directors or something like that. And you need to have those skills available to you as a software developer. That's why writing blog posts or writing for magazines or presenting at conferences and user groups, that's why those are so important. They help you hone those communication skills. You yeah. hire a lot of developers, is, you know, you look for this? Uh, yeah, most definitely communication is by far my number one criteria for hiring someone whatsoever because communication is so broad and so important that you simply mm -hmm. cannot live without it. Communication means writing, as you mentioned, and writing covers quite a lot of things. It, it means uh, writing comments, inline comments, writing commit yeah. messages. Uh, helping write documentation. Even if you don't spend three days writing documentation, it's just about writing 
you know, a couple of descriptive commit messages and probably updating the change log so that when you look back six months, uh, it's clear what exactly happened and what's the actual order of, of uh, kind of work. Yep. Uh, additionally, in any company that's over, you know, five or six people, you work with people in different rooms and maybe even remotely. And writing is one of the primary mechanisms of working within an organization, meaning you're using Slack or um, what was it, Facebook Workspace or something like that, or Microsoft Teams or, or another product, and you're spending quite a lot of time in writing. And one of the, the things I hate the most is just dragging a conversation forever for something that should have been cleared out so early. And I remember that's actually an anecdote I'm going to share. I was working for a remote company, and this was, I already had probably seven years or so as a developer. And I joined my second remote company, uh, working on a very complex uh, real estate product. And I was chatting with the team and I thought that everything is running smoothly. And at some point, my technical, my CTO pulled me and said, look, your communication is inefficient. He was a, a very direct guy. He, he simply did not have time for any sort of familiarities and so forth. He said, your communication is inefficient. From now on, I'm going to expect you for every single thing that you need to sync with the team to text me on Skype. And until I approve it, you cannot communicate with the team. Oh, and wow. I, I, I'm, I swear this was literally it. And it was kind of intimidating. It wasn't really the, <laughs> the best feeling I had in my whole life, but you get the point. But roughly speaking, I spent two weeks following that and then he let me communicate with the team. And guess what? I was a poor communicator. I would just say, hey guys, uh, can you help me out with this bug? <laughs> or something like that. And this changed to, hey guys, I'm working on this particular branch and this particular project. I have this problem screenshot. I tried this, this, this. And I know that some of you have worked on this one. Can you help me out? I have a commit, which is this one here. I just need help with yada, yada, yada. And then this allows for someone to just spend one minute reading this and a couple minutes answering if they can and not sending a gazillion follow-up uh, comments simply because it wasn't there. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, I, I think communication is, um, a good communication is invaluable. And um, that actually kind of ties into our final point Mm -hmm. The reverse side of communication. Um, yeah, I, I've got a nice long title here, but it basically boils down to be a good listener because mm -hmm. you've got to be, as a software developer, users are going to come to you and say, I need X. And they, in their mind, they actually believe that's what they need. But you have to identify, no, you probably don't need X. You need Y and then let me explain why that is. And then once you have identified the underlying need that they have, because all they see is the problem they have, they don't see the need. Your job as a developer is to under, uncover that need and then communicate it back to them in a way that they can go, yes, that's actually what I want. So listening, <laughs> listening mm -hmm. is a valuable skill. Absolutely. And this is, I would say this is a third of the problem. Listening is definitely it. And there are two other things that you need to be able to do. The first one is you should be able to assess the business impact of a problem, which will help you estimate that and estimate the effort and also figure out whether this is a legitimate request that comes in or not. You know, yes, absolutely. Is it quick yeah. to fix or is it going to require three months to actually build but the client wants it in a, in a, in, you know, in, in a week, for example. And the second thing is 
In case you are falling a victim of scope creep or whatever, you need to be able, based on the business requirements, to suggest two or three alternatives that are going to solve the problem. Say, hey, you want this now and they understand this. The quickest possible hack is doing this. The drawbacks are A, B, C, D, E, F. Our suggested approach is doing B, which is going to take longer, but it has the best of both words and so is this, but has those couple of drawbacks. Or if you really want the full picture, which is what you're asking for, it's going to require 500 hours, but it's going to have a fully fledged stack and a better architecture and it's going to be scalable with APIs, with this and extensible and performant and secure and blah, 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 blah. So this puts things into context, like if you want it ASAP, this is a quick hack we are going to do, but it's not going to remain forever. The fully fledged solution requires so many things that you never thought about. And this is going to require refactoring and rebuilding and new layers and new monitoring systems, blah, 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 blah. And there's an intermediate layer. So it's totally up to you. But if you as a developer have the skills to explain that and to, to kind of T-size it, to measure it properly, then pretty much everything's on the right track. And you have a, you are going to get the green light to whether you need to do a hacky and the base solution Mm -hmm. or whether it's fine to just drag this along forever. <laughs> yep. And you know, there are, there are triggers that you can, if you hear, you know that this is a much deeper problem and they haven't thought it through. Like anytime I hear somebody say, I just need, as soon mm -hmm. as they say just, I'm like, you've not thought this through. I yeah. just need a shopping cart. Well, if you just need a shopping cart, you've not thought out the fact that you have to have a user management system and an inventory management system and all of this other stuff that goes behind the scenes for you, somebody being able to say, I want to buy this. So mm -hmm. um, anytime I hear a, a user come to me and say, I just need, that's a red flag that we're going to have to dig deep before we could uncover everything. And the problem that they're trying to solve is probably going to be much larger than they understand. And it's my job as a developer to help them understand what the actual problem is. And then you're right, lay out two or three solutions and let them choose. Because usually as a developer, I don't have all of the picture. I can tell you what it's going to take. I usually can't tell you the value to the company. You know, yeah. I can't make mm -hmm. that value decision. I can tell you this, this option, this option, this option. Somebody mm -hmm. else has, has that information and they have to make that decision. And they're no more or less important than me because I got to get that estimate right. But, it, you know, it, it's just a separate set of skills and a separate set of information. Yeah, and if you're talking directly to a project major or so, and if you see that something that will take quite a lot of time isn't really high priority, let your project major or whoever else knows, uh, which is pretty much going to be, um, well, for example, this is a random page and we need to do some random changes, but this will require new blocks of data and this and that and this and that. So it's probably going to take 50 hours. We believe that this random request, the client doesn't understand how expensive it's going to be, so let them know. Or in case there's a good reason for that, such as a legal challenge, you know, privacy page, GDPR, whatever it is, then it's simply going to take 50 hours. So make sure you understand the business problem ahead and the potential loss or the ROI, at least as best as possible based on discussions with your PM. And this is really going to help you uh, quite a lot. And yeah, I believe this is it up for now.
Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, this is the No BS Engineering Podcast. Uh, Kyle and I are extremely happy to be here with you and share our know-how for career advice for developers, both beginner and senior ones. Make sure you listen in, uh, whatever you're using, iTunes, Spotify, or if you're watching us on YouTube, rate, subscribe, review. Uh, help us understand what are the topics that you really enjoy the most? What can we improve? What's the desired duration of the podcast or anything else that comes to mind? We're also both very active on Twitter and you can find us elsewhere. And we're always looking for new topics to discuss with you. Um, Thanks again and see you next week with the next episode. See y'all.